welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this week's episode, guest host Stefan Soot interviews Dr. Lisa Cacho, who is an associate professor of Latina and Latino studies and Asian American studies at the University of Illinois. Together, they discuss Dr. Cacho's recent book, Social Death, Racialized Rightlessness, and the Criminalization of the Unprotected. In it, Dr. Cacho explains the sociological concept of social death and how it often applies to racial minorities in America. Her book explores how the notion of a racial other contributes to the criminalization of people on the basis of status rather than their behavior. Lisa Cacho, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. So, a question that I'm sure that most potential readers have when they first approach your book is, what is social death? So, in your own words, could you describe what social death is and how it became one of the central concepts for your book? Well, uh, social death was uh, coined by um, Orlando Patterson in his book Slavery and Social Death, and I just find the concepts that he used really useful in thinking about um, thinking about really marginalized, really vulnerable populations of color today. And the reason is because social death is unlike something like bare life. I feel like social death focuses on us. It makes us implicated in other people's vulnerability, you know, because it's all about like being um, torn away from society, like not integrated within the social worlds, right? Um, Within Patterson's ideas, it's also about being stripped of like kinship relationships. So it's about like being isolated, right? Um, It's about people not being sympathetic towards your plight. And I feel that with um, criminalized groups of color in the United States, this is kind of what happens, is that all of us are implicated. All of us like participate in their devaluation and isolating them from the rest of society. So the next question I have actually expands off of what you just mentioned. Use the term de facto status crime to describe the process by which certain people of color, because of their associations to stigmatization, such as uh, terrorists, um, undocumented immigrants, gang members, are racialized as being inherently criminal. How and why does this occur? Um, well, uh, status crimes, they're, they're now unconstitutional. Like the actual term status crime is, is when your, your actual status was in and of itself the crime. So the example people might use is like how a prostitute, that used to be a status crime, being a prostitute. Now that's unconstitutional, and we would say that um, prostitution, like the, uh, the act of prostituting, like the conduct or the action is now the crime. Um, I use the term de facto status crime because I think that that hasn't quite, I think we actually still do uh, criminalize status in the United States, um, even though it's supposed to be unconstitutional that we do have things like gang enhancement laws that only affect gang members. But I think we also, you know, we also just inherit this from when race and gender and sexuality were actual statuses in the law historically. You know, we actually did exclude people based on their status. Racial, racial identity was a status, like Chinese exclusion, right? Jim Crow laws, like those were race being used. 
as not just an identity, but also a status and a way to exclude people or to discipline people or regulate people. And I think we still inherit that today, although it's not necessarily racial identities now, it's, but it's still statuses that are, in fact, racialized, like undocumented immigration, um, like gang members, mm-hmm. etc. Um, so race is clearly the angle with which, with which you argue that criminalization functions in the U.S. Is it possible to extend your analysis of criminalization further to include other or different vectors, such as gender, sexuality, and or social class? Um, well, I, I do think that, uh, you know, so, so in, the, in the beginning of the book when I talk about how race and criminalization are so intricately connected, what I argue is that um, you need race to recognize criminalization, like, or you need race to recognize when a crime is happening. So I give the example of Hurricane Katrina with the looters, um, when people were uh, upset because photojournalists had posted pictures of white looters, um, and it was saying, look, they found bread and water from grocery stores, right? And they posted that alongside black looters, where it said, you know, they were looting from grocery stores. And people were upset because they felt that that was like stereotyping black people as criminals and um, white people as not. But in what I argue is that it's different, that what I think is actually happening is that people are not, they're looking at white people, they can't see that crime is occurring, right? So crime is occurring, they're taking things from grocery stores, but they actually aren't registering that as a crime. When they see the same thing happening with a black body, they register that as a crime. Like that then becomes a crime. So what I argue is that race is needed for criminality to be legible or recognizable. So the way in which this would function with gender, sexuality, and social class is um, I think that all of those things and more, right, like immigration status and et cetera, all of these things do make us even more vulnerable, right, not just to being recognized to uh, as criminals, but also just more vulnerable to the different kinds of violences that emerge from being criminalized. So I think that, you know, they do work together, like race in and of itself doesn't, um, it never exists in isolation. Um, and that these other uh, these other forms just help to actually make certain people's lives even uh, even harder to recognize as valuable. So, for instance, like all of the different uh, transgender um, men and women who have been being ki- who have been killed, uh, it's not as like visible in our media as mm-hmm. it has been with some of the um, the youth. And part of that goes back to, and part of what you said in the beginning goes back to. Your original comments about the de facto status crimes mm-hmm. and how certain bodies are just registered as being yeah. criminal to begin with. Yeah. Okay. Um, so much of your book warns against the leer of legibility that comes with marginalized populations relying on rights-based discourses to empower themselves. What are these dangers of of being legible of of, of relying on these rights-based discourses? Mm-hmm. I think I think when I'm talking about the lure of legibility. Um, that uh, I think this is a, a quote from uh, Grace Hong in a talk that she gave, which, uh, which in similar ways is, a, um, is about uh, the, the lure of legibility is about trying to warn us that when we want to be valuable to U.S. society or when we're arguing for certain populations to, that, uh, that they deserve rights or that they deserve re- resources, um, that they, because they are valuable members, is that it's almost always done implicitly or explicitly against 
people who we see as not as valuable, right? So because the only way to really make us, ourselves or the populations that we care about legibly valuable to the United States is to play into the values of the United States, mm -hmm. right? So for instance, criminals are not valuable, but people who work are. So um, the lure of legibility for maybe um, uh, those of us who are invested in immigrant rights might be to argue that they are workers and not criminals, right? Explicitly or implicitly. And what that does though is it at the same time it helps to make a population more legibly valuable to the mainstream. It also uh, kind of strengthens arguments against criminalization or, or, or not against it. It, uh, it strengthens like um, you know kind of that discipline and punishment culture of the United States that wants to criminalize people and and in, in effect, a lot of times what I, I feel like happens is that when we do this, we can provide more fuel for things like harsher immigration laws. Because we're like, oh, well, but we should punish the criminal, the criminal immigrants mm -hmm. and then reward the ones who are not. Um, and oftentimes, you know, they're the same people. So expanding off of the previous question, how many people reject the language of social death without simply seeking its opposite or social life? In other words, how may marginalized people empower themselves and the ones around them without reifying the same rights-based discourses that you warned against in the previous comment? I mean, I think that's a hard thing to answer. Um, I mean, I think that that one of the one of the most important things is to just find ways to empower ourselves, right, and to try to work against the ways that the state which can be through the rights-based discourses um, or, you know, even like a uh, those who are supportive of state violences, like it's important that we don't allow those to disempower us. Um, so finding different ways to remain empowered, um, I think that that's what's important. So I'm not sure if that's really answering your question, though. <laughs> um, it's part of it is that um, it's part, the, the process is part yeah. of the struggle, right? So the yeah. process is part of the journey, and that there isn't always this clear cut what to do, a clear, clear cut answer on how the, on what the end result will be, mm -hmm. essentially, right? Yeah, that's much better. <laughs> that's exactly what it meant. <laughs> well, I think that actually segues nicely into one of the last questions that mm -hmm. I have for you. It's, um, how do you see the ideas that you raise in your book engaging with contemporary racial and social justice movements, such as Black Lives Matter? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I hope that they, you know, engage uh, the issues with these different movements. Um, Black Lives Matter, I think, is a really great, it's just a really great empowering movement. And they work really hard to not say that only one kind of black life matters, right? Yeah. They actually work really hard against the value systems of the United States and try really hard to make different groups legible um, within the black community. So um, I don't think that, you know, they need to read my book. <laughs> I think that they just have already, you know, they've already done that. And, um, but it's, just uh, uh, as a side note, I think that um, in general, like the work I do is not activist work, it's scholarly work, and activist work is so much more difficult and so hard. Um, I just really respect the things that activists do do, but you know, I don't wanna necessarily conflate the two. The, I feel like what I do is um, maybe try to help us understand what happens when um, activism doesn't get what they need, um, or isn't isn't receiving what you know they've been demanding. Then I try to help figure out 
what's going on in the United States to um, to prevent that, right? But you know, I think that the real work, like when society actually changes, it is due to the hard work of activists. Absolutely agree. Um, so I have one last question. Uh, so um, in the final chapter, you discuss at length a very personal account, the complicated relationship you shared with your late cousin, Brandon. In particular, you write about the difficulties and contradictions that you long wrestled with in trying to redeem Brandon and his troubled past. How did you come to the conclusion to include Brandon's narrative in your book? What types of recommendations would you give to other scholars whose scholarship is closely connected to their own biographies? Um, that's a good question. And uh, the, I, actually, I actually was not planning to originally include uh, that conclusion in the book. And um, it was different friends who were also scholars had encouraged me to include that chapter. Um, they feel like it was important to include in the book. And I think that when you do write certain pieces of um, scholarship, it doesn't belong to you anymore. Like, it belongs to your readers. Um, I am glad that I did include it. I think that it has, uh, it speaks to different people in different ways. And I, I'm not sure what kind of recommendations I can give to other scholars. Um, I, think, I think it is always important to write for yourself and about yourself. I don't know if it's always important to publish that. I guess so. I think I would say to um, to just to just know that. Like I, I think it's important to realize that you do open yourself up to different kinds of vulnerabilities when you decide to write about yourself um, or your family and your relationships, and to just kind of keep that in mind. Well, thank you so much for your, for your comments. Um, were there any were there any last comments or questions that you have for me before I sign? No. <laughs> okay, well, thank, thank you so you. much, Lisa Gotcha. <laughs>